The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork, is what Psalm 19 verse 1 says. And in the book of Acts, that has been the agenda to glorify God. It's as if there is a gospel train that has been let loose in chapter 1, and it is raging throughout the world. And the gospel message is going out that is saying, come, come to know this God who made this magnificent creation. Value him, live for him, get on this train by turning from your sins and believing what Jesus has done on the cross. And that conductor, Jesus himself, is leading that train. Well, as we work through the book of Acts, it's a familiar pattern. Whenever we see their momentum being built, it is met with opposition. In the past couple of weeks that we have been together, we've been working through and looking at the life of Peter and how the gospel has gone out to the non-Jews or the Gentiles. But here in Acts chapter 12, we return to Jerusalem where Peter is on center stage. So turn with me back now to Acts chapter 12. My intention is to cover the vast majority of this passage with you this morning. And I'm going to give you six different words that will serve as an outline. I don't normally do this, but all these words will begin with the letter R. So let's start with the first word, which is that of resistance. Let's look at the first five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother, and John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. If you've read through the New Testament, the word Herod is a familiar word to you. You see it frequently. And perhaps you've wondered, who is this guy? He is everywhere. Well, the reason for that is Herod is a title. And there is more than one Herod, as there is more than one Caesar. We read of Herod in the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 2, he is the one who has proclaimed this edict to kill boys that are two years and younger. That is Herod the Great. And there is a family trend among Herod's family, and that is that they are known for their brutality. Uh, Herod uh, murdered many of his wives. He also married or murdered people within his family that threatened to take his kingship. The Herod that we read here in Acts chapter 12 is not Herod the Great. Rather, it is his grandson. Herod here represents the Romans, but he is wanting to have approval with the Jews so that his rule will go well for him. And so he realizes that there is opposition against the Christians And he can gain favor if he can kill some of them. And so if you remember 
the, the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you remember that there were 12 disciples. But of those 12, three of them were in this inner circle. There was Peter, and then there were the sons of thunder, these brothers, James and John. One of these brothers, James, as it says here in Acts 12, too, is killed by Herod by the sword. And this is a fulfillment of something that Jesus prophesied or promised would take place in the Gospel of Matthew. James' death fulfills Matthew 20, verses 20 through 23. You might remember this story where James and John's mother comes up to Jesus and says, we would like you to do something for us. And Jesus says, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Now, what was he referring to with that drink? Was he referring to a drink of water or a drink of Gatorade? No, he was referring to the death that he was experiencing in obedience to his father. And, and he was telling James and John, are you going to follow the same path I am? In verse 23, he says to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus had told James that he would experience the same outcome that Jesus had. And that's what we see here in the fulfillment of Acts chapter 12, verse 2. got to give credit to Herod here. If you're going to knock out some of Jesus' followers, he is attempting to take two of the top three. He's already got James, and now he has Peter arrested. It says here in our passage that these were the days during the unleavened bread. It also tells us in verse 4 that this is the Passover festival. So Herod has taken Peter and he has arrested him. It seems likely that he is going to have him killed, but because it's the Passover time and the law would not allow them to have someone killed, he is waiting. Now, if you've been listening closely, you would say, Chad, wasn't Jesus killed during the Passover? And you would be absolutely right. And that's just further evidence of how corrupt that trial was. Peter is in jail. Herod, being opportunistic, is waiting for a time when there'll be a large crowd where he can garner more support from the Jews. And there, Peter awaits his death there in jail. So there you have the resistance. Now let us consider the rest. How many of you are light sleepers? Okay, I see a few of you. I certainly am, but I'm not married to one that is. She, and I envy this, is a sound sleeper. And so is Peter. Look with me at the next two verses here in verses 6 and 7. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. 
he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. We read in the opening verses, in verse 4, that there were four squads of soldiers. This is how I understand it. Four soldiers were assigned to Peter. There would be two that would shackle or be chained to him, and then there would be two other guards that would stand outside the jail cell. And despite this, and knowing that he will likely die the next day, we see Peter sleeping soundly. In fact, the angel comes in and shines a light, and this does not wake him. The scriptures record that he actually is struck in the side by the angel, and this is what finally awakes him. Now, what would give him such rest? Have you thought of that? I think there are at least two different answers. One, he'd been there before. If you remember Acts chapter 5, Peter was imprisoned and God released him. But I think there's even a more uh, fuller reason for why he was in this state of resting. And it goes back to a promise that Jesus made to him in John chapter 21. Do you remember after Jesus died on the cross and was raised to life, he sat down with Peter and he said, do you love me? And he asked him that question three different times. And in the same context, he says in John 21, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus is telling Peter here that he will be old. So what leads to such deep, restful sleep for Peter is he is just resting on the words of Jesus. This Peter would go on to write a couple of books in the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he writes, casting all your cares on him, Because he cares for you. I'm telling you that Peter was qualified to write those words. Indeed, he had cast his anxieties on the Lord. So, so far what we've got is we've got resistance, we've got rest, and now let us consider rescue, the third part. And we'll read our next part of our passage, verse 6. That's exactly, let's go down to verse 8. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and when they went out and went along one street, immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. It is clear from these verses that that Peter was in this sound sleep and suddenly awoke. 
And he wasn't exactly sure what was happening. He wasn't sure if it was actually a dream or if it was real life. You've probably had a similar experience, haven't you? Where you've been in a dead of sleep and suddenly something has woken you up and you're not exactly sure, am I dreaming or is this real? Just a few weeks ago, I had an experience like this with a family of five boys. Uh, Melody often decides if she's going to get something done in peace and quiet, she does it in the middle of the night. And so she's currently working on a kitchen project. It was probably two or three in the morning on a steamy June evening, and, and suddenly I hear this scream that goes throughout all the walls of our house. And I was sleeping, and I got up, and I thought, what in the world? And I walk out to the kitchen, and there she is, says, there is someone outside. So I go back into our bedroom, and I find the safe where our gun is, thinking, now's my chance. <laughs> and so I start punching in the, 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 the code to it, and, and the batteries are dead. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And now I don't know if this is real or if it's a dream. Now, where did I put the key for the... Oh, it's over here. So I go in, I grab the keys, and, and I'm able to unlock it and finally get to the gun. And now I feel like I'm John Wayne, leaving my bedroom, walking into the kitchen with my gun, ready for action. And I say, where is he? And she says, oh, it's actually just a raccoon. <laughs> and the adrenaline was going, as well as this, this drowsy stupor. Like, is this really real or not? And I go back and I set the gun back in the safe. I lock it up and I lay down and I'm like, did that really happen? And I asked her yes, or or asked her the following morning, yeah, that really did happen. So that's an experience that I think Peter is having here. It's like, is this really happening? Finds out, indeed, he has been released, miraculously released. You know, history tells stories like this. This isn't the only time something like this happened. In 1964, some communist rebels were invading the African country of Zaire. They arrested and executed many citizens. There was a pastor by the name of Zebedee Aidu who was one of their victims. They had sentenced him to death before a firing squad and placed him in a jail for the night. The next morning, he and a large number of prisoners were herded into a truck and driven down to a public place for execution. With no explanation, the official told the prisoners to line up and the number off. One, two, one, two, one, two. The ones were placed in front of the firing squad and the twos were taken back to the prison. Pastor Idu was among those who were spared. Back in the jail cell, the prisoners could hear the sound of gunfire. The pastor took advantage of the dramatic moment to share the story of Jesus and the hope of heaven. Eight of the prisoners gave their lives to Christ that day. About the time Pastor Ardu finished sharing, an excited messenger came to the door with a release order. The The pastor had been arrested by mistake and was free to leave. He said goodbye to the prisoners and hurried to his home next to the chapel. There he discovered a crowd of believers who were praying for his release. And when they saw the answer to their prayers walk through the door, the prayer service turned into a praise service. The same God who had heard the prayers of the New Testament church in Jerusalem and saved Peter from execution heard prayers from Zaire and delivered their pastor. God still answers prayers. 
And so let us look then fourthly at the request. And by request, I mean prayers. As we're following through this this chapter here in chapter 12, how is it the church responded to this crisis? Look with me at verse 12 and following. When he realized this, that's when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The value of going through a study in the book of Acts is seeing how the church responded to crisis. And what we see here is they went to prayer. And there are four different things that we can learn about the way that they prayed. The first thing we can see is that they prayed earnestly. Look with me, back to verse 5, where it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now this isn't the only place where Luke speaks about prayer in an earnest way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Luke recorded Jesus' prayers were in earnest. He said, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I think we can conclude from that, as these Christians gathered together to pray in this home, the home of John Mark's mother, that this was a passionate pleas for God's intervention. These were not safe and domesticated prayers. These were one of, oh God, you have to help. Peter is our friend. He is our leader. Would you please miraculously rescue him? The second thing we see of these prayers, not only were they earnest, but they were also corporate. In verse 5 it says, that these prayers were made by the church. In verse 12, it records that many had gathered to pray. Now, how many Christians could you fit into this house to pray? We're not exactly sure. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do we pray on Sunday mornings? What is the value of corporate prayer? Let's say there are 50 different people that have gathered in this home for prayer. Is the strategy here, if you got 50 people, then, then at least one of those prayers will get through and be heard? Not so. You see, God values when his people are unified in asking for one thing with one heart. And that's what's taking place here within this church. And church family, that challenge still exists for us today that as we pray, that we are to pray with a unified heart, 
And there will be challenges that come across frequently. One of them is the coronavirus. Uh, Many of us may see this in one particular way. And there will be some that fear the Lord, that are part of your church family, that see it another way. And we need to love and offer grace to one another in those differences. We need to be unified in the gospel and, and offer grace in things where they're not nearly as important. Well, here they were corporate and they were praying for this. And they were also specific in their prayer request. It says here that they prayed in verse 5 that they prayed for him. That is, that they prayed for his release. The final thing we see of this prayer is something that might be shocking to us. It's not something that you might think you're going to hear in a sermon on a Sunday morning. Another thing that characterized their prayer was doubt. You know what I appreciate about this story in Acts chapter 12 is that it is absolutely clear who the hero is. It's certainly not Herod. Herod is trying to put up a roadblock to this gospel train as it is advancing. It's not Peter either. Because Peter is sound asleep and needs to be struck in the side. And he's not even exactly sure if this is real or not as he is being released from the jail. And it's not the Christians either. Because as we read this account here, they are praying earnestly, yes, for Peter's release. But as they are praying, there is a knock at the gate outside this home. And they send a servant girl out named Rhoda, whose name means Rose. And she goes out and discovers that the answer to their prayer is knocking on the gate. And she comes in and reports, he's out there. And as they're praying, oh God, we know that you can do this. And they're praying for a miracle. Oh God, would you release him from jail? She says, he's out there. They say, you are out of your mind. He's not out there. We need to continue to pray for his release. And so they continue to pray. Oh God, we pray, would you do this? Work it out so he can join us again. And, and, and Rhoda comes out there and says, he is out there. And she said, no, that's an angel. He's probably already dead by now. And they're missing the whole point. Finally, he's continuing to knock on the door so he can be let in because if he gets captured by the, the guards, the, the soldiers, he'll be right, brought right back into jail. And finally, he shows himself. God has answered your prayers. I find encouragement from this passage. These people in this church are just like us. Yes, they might be earnest in their prayers, but there are times where there may be some doubts. And despite themselves, God chooses to use them. And God desires to use you as well. This week I read of a a small little town in Texas Uh, that right before World War II, there was this awful fire that killed over 260 students. It was devastating to the small community. And when that community rebuilt that school, they said, what we're going to do is have the most sophisticated sprinkler system that there is. And so they put that sprinkler system in, and the school resumed 
They had to honor students, give tours to people to come by that school, and they would show them that sprinkler system. Well, this community was rebuilt, and people began to move to it. And after seven years, that school needed to be added to. And when they began that construction, you know what they discovered? That that sprinkler system was not even set up. And that they were just as vulnerable as before. And I'm wondering about your lives, loved ones. Are there some fires going on? Are there some crisis going on in your life right now? And are you calling out to God who is giving you the resource of prayer to intervene in your crisis? Just two weeks ago, we were loading up and getting ready to go on our trip to North Carolina. And early Sunday morning, I typically load up and I come down to the church early and get ready for the service. And my wife, Melody, said, hey, Chad, there's a, there's a seat belt that's locked in place. And if that doesn't get break free, we're not going to be able to use that space for, for packing. And when you've got an eight-passenger vehicle and five kids and, and, and seven sleeping bags and seven pillows and tents and all that stuff, I assure you, you need every square footage for packing. And my mind is typically one track And all I have in my mind is to get to church and get ready. And I decide, you know, I'm going to take a look at this seatbelt before I go. And so I walk in and I pull on that seatbelt and it is locked just as she said. And I'm like, I don't have time to look at a manual. I don't have time to go to a YouTube video. And I pray out loud. I say, God, you and I both know that the only way that this seatbelt is going to come unlodged is if you give me an idea that I currently don't have. And I didn't even finish that prayer. I didn't even get to say amen. And a little plastic thingy came uncapped. And I was able to get in there and turn that belt and unloosen it and put it back. And it worked just fine. It was an absolute answer to prayer because that idea was not in my mind. What I appreciate about the summer, about summer vacations, and our family, we like road trips, is it gives me an opportunity to have uninterrupted time with my wife and my boys. And as we take these long drives, and as we sit in the tent or around the nature, I get a chance to just discern what is going on in their hearts, what is coming out of their mouth, certain trends in their attitudes. And then on our long drive, some 22, 23 hours back, as I'm driving through the Blue Ridge Mountains of West Virginia, I have an opportunity to pray, God, here is what I've observed. Now, help me. Help me to adjust our parenting to be able to to minister to these boys. Help me to adjust my approach to my wife to be able to love her in an understanding way. And we get to Chicago, and she drives a few hours. We have breakfast in Kenosha. And for the next couple of hours, I say, boys, you put your headphones on, and you, and you watch a movie because mom and dad are going to talk about our family. And then we begin to make adjustments to how we're going to parent and how our family is going to go. That's not because I'm a pastor. That's because I'm a dad. And that's what the Bible tells us to do, to tend to our sheep, to know the condition of our flocks. Dads, on this Father's Day, this is what we are to be doing, to continually be monitoring the conditions of our wives and of our children. And we can do that through observation, yes, but also through prayer. Well, let us consider the fifth R, and that is retribution. How do you think this played out in Herod's view? 
Look with me here at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So these soldiers that were bound to Peter were put to death. And then we see the next part here in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So here's what you have. You have Tyre and Sidon. That is not King Herod's jurisdiction, but they have come to him so that they could get food. And they appeal to one of his personal attendants, a man by the name of Blastus, to try to persuade him to come down there. Verse 21. On an appointment day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus is a first century historian who is not a follower of Jesus. Yet he offers a historical account of this episode that complements what Luke records. He says, yes, indeed, there was an event. And that festival was to honor Caesar. And they did wear royal robes. Josephus said that they were made holy of silver and a contexture truly wonderful. And they shined in the morning sun. And the king did not rebuke them when they offered these flattering words. And shortly after that, this king was dead. Now, Josephus said it was five days later. I think Luke here uses the word immediately here in verse 23. What was the cause? What was the crime that Herod had committed? Well, he killed James, right? He put, he put Peter in jail, right? No. As we see here, Herod was struck down because he did not give glory to God. We see that in verse 23. Because he did not Give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is a big deal to God. To give him his proper honor, his respect, his worship. In Isaiah 42 verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. This is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This idea of glorifying God is absolutely foundational. We see it in something called the depravity of sin or the depravity of man. In the book of Romans, where we have it laid out for us in a wonderful way what the gospel is, what we read here is that all men and women are guilty of not giving glory to God. This is what Paul wrote. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And as a result of not glorifying God, God has turned man over to his own sinful ways. 
And this has led down a variety of different tracks. Sins that you struggle with, that I don't. Sins that I struggle with, and you don't. But that is the cause of it. We did not give glory to God. Here's the picture. The gospel train is advancing through the book of Acts. Herod Agrippa tries to stand up as a roadblock and says, this train will advance no further. And like a freight train, it runs right over and bringing justice to Herod's life. And what was the result of it? What is the result? And this is the last R of our passage this morning. It is found there in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Nothing will stop this gospel train. And take encouragement, loved ones, today. As you look around and you say, look at what the Supreme Court just decided on Monday. Nothing's going to stop this gospel train. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Perhaps you've heard of a French philosopher named Voltaire, who was an one that did not believe in the existence of God and sought to ridicule those that did. He proclaimed arrogantly, 50 years from now, people won't even know who Jesus is. 50 years after his death, a group of people called the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and set up some printing presses and published Bibles by the thousands from his very home. The gospel will continue to advance. And on this Father's Day, I encourage you to get on that gospel train. Have you trusted Christ to save you from your sins? If you come to Christ, it is not a matter of saying, I'll get on that train if it'll take me where I want to go. It reminds me of a story of Joshua in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, who was getting ready for war. And as he was getting ready to go into Jericho, the the commander of the Lord's army came to him. And Joshua said, are you on my side or are you on the other side? The commander of the Lord's army said, no. That's not how I play. And Joshua said, what do you want me to do? He said, take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua worshipped him there. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's not a matter of, God, can you help fulfill all my selfish ambitions? It's saying, I relinquish my selfish ambitions. And I want to be a follower of yours. It's not a big piece of pie that says, God, I will carve out a portion of my life for you and for your church. But there are other portions for my interests and my money and my my dreams. God wants all of the pie. And this is what it means to get on that gospel train. And men, if you are a father today and you are on that train, then your greatest priority is to glorify God. Yes, but to make sure that your wife and your children and your grandchildren and your family members and all of your friends, as best you can, have received an invitation to that train. Let us spend some time this morning concluding this service by reflecting on that. What is the condition of your flocks, man? How is your wife doing? 
How are your children doing? Are you, are you tuned into their hearts and what's going on? Are you, are you taking care of them and are you leading them and, if necessary, positioning differently within your family a way to, to offer an approach that guides them in the ways of God? And let me offer a word to our children or to our youth. If your dad is doing that, he is doing what God is asking him to do. Don't resist it. To resist your dad is to resist the one who has positioned your dad. Honor your father. As Miss Vanna comes and plays, let's just have a time of prayer. And if you would like, the altar here is open. Let us pray for our dads today, our grandfathers. As they have this responsibility, yes, of leading their own life, but also leading the lives of their wives and children and as much as they can with their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Let's take some time and pray. Father, it's just like you in your providence to have a passage like this to follow up um, a week of of a Supreme Court decision where many could be discouraged And yet we see here King Herod who was actually killing Christians. And despite this, we see the gospel train just advancing and moving forward and growing and multiplying. It's just a reminder that you are in control and that you are going to build your church. Oh, what a privilege it is that you would take people like this passage here that, yes, they prayed earnestly and corporately and specifically, but there, there was actually some doubt in their prayers as well. And we see that, that you use ordinary people just like us. Thank you for that. And, and help us not to miss and just play it safe and sit off on the sidelines, but say, use me. I, I want to be on that train. I, I want to be following the conductor here. I want to be inviting people along. We pray for our dads today that you would enable them, free them up, make them the men you want them to be, clean them up from their sin, give them boldness, give them joy in setting an example, and bring healing where necessary. I pray that today there would be dads that are honored within our auditorium, outside of our auditorium, or maybe it's just the memory of dads being honored today. Uh, We thank you for how you sovereignly work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.